Hello and welcome to Overexposed, a podcast about pollution and its effects on everything living and non-living. In every episode, we speak to participants of the Sonic X residency program, Overexposed. My name is Arif, and today my co-host Andrea and I speak to Angela Chan, a researcher and creative climate change communicator. For every episode of this podcast, we ask a resident to send us an artifact that has moved their practice in a lasting way. Welcome, Angela. Hello. Hi. We emailed you and we asked you to bring an artifact to the podcast. What did you decide to bring? I've decided to bring a puddle of water. I think it's something that's near us all, um, unless we've had a very um, early summer already. Um, it's been raining quite a lot here in the UK in the past month. It seems like the April showers have drifted into the May season, which is a bit uncommon. But a puddle of water that can, to me, symbolise quite a lot of the way that we maybe dismiss our most immediate environments and the most immediate elements that we actually depend on the most. And um, can you maybe speak a bit how this artifact relates to your work or...? Yeah, sure. Um, I've been thinking about water in terms of resource scarcity quite a lot in the past, most recently in the past few months, but definitely in a much longer term um, process as well in my work. And specifically last year in the UK, there was a report that came out and it was supported by the government's environmental agency. And it warns that in two decades time, the UK will face water, water scarcity um, and it will be a crisis that is uh, going to be all encompassing and affecting us to a very great extent. But I problematise the way that it's framed. I think a lot about how climate change issues are communicated to members of the public, um, regular citizens who might not necessarily think about climate issues in a, in a day-to-day setting. And the thing about this report that really kick-started my um, critique of this was that it names the citizens as the consumer of water, um, you know, as a customer who is overusing and secondly it also states that the growing population in the UK is a contributing factor of um, a greater use in the country. So to really kind of situate how I guess in the UK there's been an anti-immigrant sentiment that's been growing with the Conservative government's ruling over the past you know decade there's something to be said about the way that the hostile environment its border control is very much connected to the way that we see our resource uh i guess scarcity and tying this with a lot of the climate issues that we face already today it's important to refocus that there is an eco-fascism that's growing um, not only in this country, but more widely in Western Europe as well, across the Americas. And this actually connects right-wing um, agendas with using climate change. It's a, it's a type of greenwashing, let's say. Um, and eco-fascism takes on fascist um, approaches and ideology to further control the borders 
um, against those who are actually the most climate vulnerable demographics in the world. Many people are fleeing their countries um, because of conflict and because of drought. Um, these are very connected um, situations and lived realities. So when we think about how to connect those quite geopolitical processes to our daily lives um, here in a very privileged situation of the UK, where actually we do also have many pockets of inequities amongst the population, predominantly in the working class and you know the, the racialized demographics. So water takes me back, I guess, to a lot of the main research I do relating to climate change and people power, really, um, the, the systemic abuse of power. And yeah, water is an element that I carry these conversations with other people. I think it would be great if you could unpack this notion of eco-fascism a bit for those who are maybe not so familiar with it. And I'm particularly curious to hear more about uh, the understanding of nature that comes with it because fascism uh, in the past has relied on or is relying today on a kind of reduction of nature that is exclusionary, right? Yeah, definitely. And yeah, the, the root of it is a very British flavor of colonialism. It's, you know, the Enlightenment era of nationalism that really restructured the idea that nature is there for us to either exploit inside out or to conserve, to protect against um, certain populations or demographics within our population from accessing those um, benefits of nature, whether as a resource or as um, land rights or as, you know, a sense of belonging to a place. And so understanding that these are, these are hundreds of years of, you know, carrying enlightenment thoughts of the British colonial era as a almost religion, almost a right across different colonies around the world to say this is you know for our British industrial revolution our actions and our industry will better your nation's kind of prosperity and economic situation and political autonomy we see this actually continued even beyond the so-called independence of The colonies whereby it's really developed into a free market imperialism you know a lot of extractions and mining these trades are really kind of begun by the industrial revolution i've been looking into actually um the arms production history of the british empire specifically in dynamites and looking at how this blueprint, really, of producing dynamite and exporting it to different areas of the world to then extract and bring back goods, raw materials for the industrial workshops in, like, in across the UK and different areas um, around the world that has these industries and factories. Um, 
So when it remains that other areas, other areas outside the safety of our nation's borders um, can be devastated and mined and completely turned over in order to produce the grandeur of the beautiful landscaped gardens of England and well, the wider UK, it's very clear how nature is designed as something that really represents the disparity um, of political power and also of freedom. So nature carries on to this day from these colonial roots. We think a lot about how inner city residents in high rises don't have access to nature, whereas, you know, even in the pandemic's effects of a lot of richer inner city residents being able to move to the countryside to have a better, um, I guess, air quality, better access to nature, have gardens, grow your own plants. You know, this is a very real contemporary issue, yeah, stemmed by these colonial roots. For me, there's something super interesting about it that I've been thinking lately about is like the fact that weather or like climate, anyway, if we try to control it, it's also part of a bigger conversation. Like it's kind of a shared conversation and it always somehow it has this dimension of being relational per se. It's like what we do in one side of the world affects the other side of the world and what happens in the other side of the world in the end is going to come back to this side of the world. So I don't know, yeah, I don't know if you, because you work a lot about these topics and like also addressing them with this idea of collective sharing or collective storytelling. I don't know if you have any thoughts about this. Yeah, there's um, there's definitely an assumption that it's British etiquette to talk about the weather whenever you feel awkward and just to comment whether it's raining or sunny and uh, well largely to complain that it's raining and so when we see this kind of language then adopted or co-opted by the reports that I mentioned earlier one of the quotes that um, I'll paraphrase says that oh well a lot of the I think it was like 77% of the population who were surveyed it's about 2,000 people Um, 77% believe that the UK is a wet and rainy country and therefore won't face water scarcity crises later in the you know, future. I think this is quite a problematic and almost ableist um, way of assuming that you know, seeing is believing is a useful or just way to communicate climate issues rather than the state and its corporations take on the fact that it hasn't communicated a lot of these um, issues to so-called consumers or, more rightly, the citizens um, who depend on this daily utility. And to say that it's actually on us is very difficult. So one of the ways that I bring about introducing a more global-facing conversation with people about water is through what I'm kind of calling living room conversations and so it's a type of like coziness that you'll have in your living room one that is actually feeling quite 
a, a bit safer, one that you share conversations with people that you trust, friends or chosen family, not necessarily with the intention to um, have a conclusion to your conversations, but one to really discuss with an experimental or even just wandering, a meandering of hopes, but thoughts and also, yeah, anxieties and grief relating to climate and environmental issues. So in a, in a current project that I'm doing called Moss Rain Paradox, which is directly critiquing this report, these kinds of living room conversations are being held around the UK via video call. But we talk about our own kind of diasporic relationships to water, how we kind of like have our own cultural uses and adaptations of water practices. Some people have been talking to me about how they bathe as a way of healing, specifically to chronic illness, but also in a spiritual way that is connected to their ancestry. For me, it's like if I talk to my mum, who's from a, a former filling village, fishing village in Hong Kong, you know, water practices are very different there, where your environment is a local industry um, based on water. There are other people also who have been working on historical archives relating to race justice in Wales, who think about how the water landscapes, Cardiff Bay, where a lot of the resistance against um, racism happened even a century ago. So migration, water, water coming out of our taps, they're all quite related. It's like a big water cycle. I'm just thinking about um, the relation between defining what is nature, what is not nature, and the colonial structures that you're talking about and how they rely on that. And I'm curious how in these living room conversations, for example, but also in other storytelling uh, projects that you do, how you counter those, if you could give an example. So I don't think it's necessarily useful to really find a definition between what is nature and what's not nature because often I guess we can consider us so far ahead of this ideological kind of origin that there have been so many processes and conflicts over this idea or over the material resource of nature as well that to define it so clearly might be conflating a lot of this history And I think a lot about histories a lot as well because there's a lot of it that has been unwritten or even erased if we're talking about the histories of people who have been marginalised by the white patriarchal supremacy. So in these kinds of living room conversations, I'm really seeking to use it as an opportunity to take a snapshot documentation of what people are feeling and what people hope for in this very specific moment of 2021. Um, for example, I've been working with youth groups recently in the recent years and it's been really fun to work for young people and 
hear about how they see the near future, firstly, it kind of takes a lot of discussion to try and situate where they feel they are in relation to both the climate movement and maybe also the everyday dimensions of being from marginalised communities. And seeing if the histories that are told represent them and if they feel like they have an agency to act on today's contemporary kind of issues that intersect their daily lives. And one of the projects that I had a lot of fun creating with a group of young people um, who are about aged 14 to 18 was creating this comic book all together. So across the span of several weeks, we actually were able to kind of uh, have really great conversations, very inspiring for me, very motivating outlooks, because sometimes it's easy, especially when you're working in the arts and also involved in like climate justice work. And it's, it's very easy to see the systemic barriers and feel quite lost. And this moment in creating with the young people was like, wow, like this energy and excitement, it's very inspiring. It gives you a new angle and perspective because whilst I think it's not the responsibility of younger generations to have to deal with our and the, and the generations before us exploiting the planet and the people um, to this extent, to carry this burden, but at the same time to see the amount of energy and hope that they also have amongst more negative feelings of anxiety and grief and inability to truly articulate, um, I guess, uh, themselves in, in this kind of adult world, maybe, of confusing politics and agency. So the comic book was a bit speculative with... Um, a kind of post-apocalyptic narrative of like underground world bunker style living. We actually took a trip to a local, an underground plant growing farm (laughs) that grew a lot of salad leaves. And we had this, well, the, the youths actually began this very critical, amazingly critical critique of it being a very neoliberal greenwashing project whereby if you have the solar energy, why not use it? Why use underground energy to grow rocket and salad leaves? Um, so their, their speculative story was a bit of a kind of, yeah, take on this reality that actually already today there are these supposedly green and sustainable projects happening that actually maybe taking the wrong direction and are playing with the novelty of climate change without addressing the real power imbalance that's involved that really should be forefronted. That sounds amazing. I wish we can, uh, we could see it in the waves in the radio. Could we maybe go a bit into the research you're conducting in your residency or how, yeah, and also about how does this research part or like more collaborative side of your work inform your artistic work? 
Yeah, so my background is mainly through curatorial projects that I've been doing for several years now, and this is really the first year that I've been able to have this support and time to go a bit deeper into those more specific research topics that I've had on my mind. And it's coming through with the main themes of thinking about the climate crisis, justice and resource scarcity in line with conflict and war. So I guess following on from the research that I recently finished um, about the British colonial production of dynamites, I've been quite focused on continuing that strand of research which goes into the historical kind of um, tracing of the commercial as well as technological and yeah colonial power structures that have become a template for how multinational corporations operate in this process of continual extraction and, and exploitation. Um, so what I see as this kind of almost mirroring or parallel of let's say the water cycle is this social justice cycle that we're seeing as well there it begins where there is or it ends where there is a lot of inequitable resource distribution amongst different populations and whether that's within a country or worldwide and so we're seeing quite a lot of the social justice protests um, and also climate protests um, against these but what's happening more and more, and it's become a very normalised thing for states to do, is to impose violence onto protesters, namely with so-called harmless munitions, such as tear gas. Um, tear gas being actually something that is a weapon that has been banned in warfare, is allowed in our, on our streets against people who have been peacefully demonstrating their rights to be against oppressive powers and so when we have this state-sanctioned violence we have also the residues the material residues of pollution in our streets and so when this after protest when states and authorities actually clean up the cities and uh, residential areas or anywhere that these munitions have been fired where does it get washed away I'm thinking in a very material sense that the pollutants and particles of such munitions get washed away into the water system and so it carries on this water cycle of it feeds pollution into the water system that is usually uh, distributed to those who are actually receiving less equitable access to resources and utilities in the first place. So people who are systemically marginalised usually face the, I guess, um, are usually more vulnerable to um, polluted access to resources, namely air, water, and without the security of land rights as well. And so breaking this cycle is a very kind of seemingly impenetrable thing and 
for me to look at into this pollutant uh, in climate process and social process also means looking into where these arms are being produced and exported from. So this connects to the longer colonial legacies of weapons productions by oppressive states like the UK. I was thinking about how in the architecture biennale now in Venice, the pavilion of Catalonia is dedicated to air, which is something that for me is quite unique. I don't have a general... Uh, I don't know, I, I didn't follow the Venice Architecture Biennale in detail for the past years, but I think it's quite interesting that somehow there's a notion or like there's a focus on the quality of air. And there has been like um, research conducted on how the quality of air, specifically because it's the Catalonian pavilion, how the quality of air in Catalonia has decreased and how we are not in, op in opposition to what you said about seeing is believing. Like, we are not so able to understand how air is progressively more contaminated and how we are also, like, all being part of how that is affecting us. And um, I was reading about how, because the piece is a music piece, And it's kind of a translation of how sound can physically translate the amount of contamination that there is in the air, which is kind of direct. But for me, it's also very interesting in terms of how if we establish tools to sense things that we cannot sense somehow, we could be able to access that knowledge. And I feel that, I don't know, it made me think when I was looking at your work that there's a, there's a pull to to make sense or like to connect with how we sense the um, these notions about pollution or contamination or like these kind of hyperstructures that actually degradate something that is very close to us somehow. Because for me, it's also very visual how you were uh, explaining it, the idea that these pollutants are... Are in our lungs. It become they become part of us, and like this idea of the division between nature and us, since it's it's not there anymore. We are just part of somehow this contaminated situation or this cycle, also. Yeah, for sure. Um, I really agree with that because, um, in a sense, we take tear gas, for example. We are learning more and more about the human effects, the impacts of um, the contamination on the body but there is still quite a lot of research that needs to be done on the longer term environmental impacts with the particles being in the situated environments and so taking your suggestion of air as well I think a lot about moss sometimes because it's it's quite an overlooked squidgy spongy being that's quite soft and cute But it's long been used as a monitor for air and water pollution. And in a way, it's a kind of biotechnology that really recognizes the things that we might overlook. It's usually found in damp and neglected places like under the bridge, next to a canal, on the roof of a building. These are indicators, I guess, within our environments that kind of can 
tell us that we're still part of an ecology that can communicate with one another. So it's, yeah, it's important to me that we take this to kind of reflect on how people communicate, not through this power system that we've really embedded into our society and so heavily depend on that we would cause conflicts and fights over like there is you know a a quite popular multi-species discourse in environmental humanities about these kinds of communications but I my research is more situated in the imbalance and inequity of humans causing this so I really want to kind of place the emphasis there um I understand that there's a lot of amazing research as I'm kind of progressing through this um, research residency. I'm coming across a lot of great um, researchers, investigators, scientists, journalists who have been looking into things like air pollution and the injustice of, of this that is often spurred by military-grade tactics and strategies. And I really want to be able to contribute to this in a way that really identifies frontline protesters and also communities that are at the receiving end of this injustice. Um, There's one thing that I'm curious about because you started to talk about moss and that it appears at certain spots, right? Um, Is there something that you can tell us about that how to read moss like where does it appear or in which ways i guess moss doesn't feature that heavily in my own practice but just as a hobby i began to be really drawn to stroking moss and documenting any moss that i would see um since i don't know since like four or five years ago i would just have this one instagram account where it's where I'm stroking moss and it's soothing and it's soft and I, I used to send it to my friends as a joke so I might as well have started an Instagram feed which still exists and then I came across Robin Wall Kimmerer's book about moss. Robin Wall Kimmerer being a moss scientist who also brings a lot of indigenous um, knowledge to the way that it helps us see the world as well. Zooming in and taking time and learning to identify something so small, its power amongst the much greater and larger entities in the ecosystem, that shed a different light to the way I see moss. Moss is actually, I mean, this I know from the scouts, moss is always pointing to the north, could it be? I am not sure, and also maybe this is why I always got lost in the <laughs> woods, but I think it has a... No, it's lichen. I'm confusing two things. Lichen is what is pointing to the north always. So if you're in a wood and then you see like this lichen, it's like in the north. And it's also an indicator that the, um, yeah, like the pollution is not so high. So Is that the plant that takes like really long time to grow? Yeah, it's this... Like uh, little fingers that go in the trees, you know? 
like little branches. I've heard that about ant hills as well, being able to orientate you and yourself in the woods, depending on where the ant hill is situated next to the tree. Um, it's yeah, it's quite interesting. I think there are ways that we can find our own directions, but the more we communicate with one another, it's it's clearer, isn't it? That was really cheesy. <laughs> no, I think it's really it, full. I think right? it's a nice end. Yeah. <laughs> good uh, ending to the conversation. Okay, thank you, Angela. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you both. It's been a pleasure as well. Thank you. Bye. Bye. <laughs>